Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Now, from the origin of the theory, biologists have wondered just how repeatable evolution can be. For example, if we throw two organisms in the same environment, can we predict how they will evolve? One of the most famed popular science writers of recent times, Stephen Jay Gould, was dead set against this idea. His basic hypothesis was that replaying the tape of life would lead to a very different world to the one that we're familiar with today. However, the emerging field of parallel evolution is producing a slew of new data showing us that often, if two closely related organisms face similar selective forces, they will, in fact, evolve in incredibly predictable ways. And in today's episode, we are looking at just one of these cases. As we discuss the recent heredity paper, Convergent Evolution on the Hypoxia-Inducible Factor Pathway Genes, EGLN1 and EPAS1, in High-Altitude Ducks. Let's meet our authors. So hi, my name is Dr. Ali Graham. I'm currently an NSF postdoctoral fellow at Oregon State University. I'm Kevin McCracken. I'm a professor currently at the University of Miami. Well, welcome to the Heredity Podcast. And to start off with, this paper is about adaptation to hypoxia at high altitudes. Maybe you could just explain what hypoxia is and how it differs from a non-hypoxic state. You want me to take that, Kevin? Sure. Yeah, you take that one. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, to put it simply, hypoxia, it just means low oxygen. It can be very specific areas within an organism. So sometimes tumors create areas of hypoxia within the body, but it can also be like in the case of the ducks that we're talking about in this paper, it can be a system-wide thing. So you're at high altitude, there's low oxygen in general, which then kind of trickles down throughout the rest of the organism. So it's, in this case, a state of being, having to deal with low oxygen, um, that's usually very important for all sorts of physiological functions. Uh, I can add to that a little bit. As you climb a mountain, for example, it's a, it's a gradual phenomenon. But as you approach about Oh, 4,000 meters or 12,000 feet, uh, you're looking at about 40% less oxygen than at sea level. And it presents a formidable problem for all kinds of species. Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, Ali, you kind of mentioned there the focus of this paper, the ducks. And one of the things that makes this study really interesting is that you're not just looking at one species, but you have three. And obviously, everybody kind of loves ducks. So maybe you could tell us a bit about the ecology and life history of these species and why it is that you chose them for this study. Did you want to take that, Kevin? Yeah, I'll take that. Um, we've been working on these ducks for almost 20 years. Allie came into my lab uh, five, six years ago, and we discussed this particular project at the time. Uh, what makes these populations very amenable to working on is that you have paired low and high altitude populations. You have the same species inhabiting zero meters above sea level in Patagonia, and then you have the same species at 4,000 meters on Lake Titicaca. The last thing that's really great about them is that there are a lot of them. They're a dominant component of the ecosystem. If you go to Lake Titicaca and go on a tourist trip, you'll see them. Uh, They're not afraid of humans in that area. And you'll see about five different species. And to have the opportunity to compare across species becomes uh, extremely useful. First of all, as, as Ali's done, it allows you to look for examples of convergent or parallel evolution. It also allows us to consider how long these species have lived at high altitudes. Some of them have been there a long time, and, and some of them are relatively recent arrivals. 
Fantastic. And one of the things that you mentioned in there is this sort of convergence at a molecular level. And in particular, you're interested in the shared group of genes that are related to the hypoxia inducible factor pathway. And I guess it might sort of be in the name, but if you could briefly just sort of explain what this pathway is and how it's allowing these ducts to live at high altitudes. Okay, sure. So uh, like you'd alluded to, the name is pretty self-explanatory in that sense. So the hypoxia-inducible factor pathway, or lovingly called the HIF pathway, are a pretty much like the main genes and pathway associated with dealing with low oxygen situations, either long-term or short-term. And what's kind of nice about these genes, at least um, I find interesting, is that in order for it to be turned on very quickly in response to low oxygen, they're pretty much constitutively expressed, the transcription factor themselves, uh, HIF-alpha and HIF-beta. But under situations where there's normoxia or normal oxygen, their repression machinery basically just eats it up. So like it's constantly expressed, but then it's constantly degraded so that it's not going in and doing anything until a situation occurs where there's low oxygen, which affects the repression machinery, allowing the transcription factors to freely move into the nucleus and then affect various transcriptional changes by binding to promoter regions and all sorts of genes. And these genes are usually um, have all sorts of different functions, but some of the main ones are dilation of blood vessels, generation of more blood vessels as well, increased blood production, increased breathing rate, and even facilitating a metabolic switch between oxidative phosphorylation to more glucose-oriented metabolism. So um, most of the time, the way that the pathway is set up is meant to deal with it in the short term because the kind of a general insinuation is that you won't be in this detrimental situation for very long. What's interesting is this pathway is frequently hit upon when people do uh, genome-wide association studies of various high-altitude residing organisms. And it makes sense to a degree that these genes, given their particular position in mitigating this situation, would be converged upon repeatedly in birds and undulates like yaks, pigs, dogs, and high-altitude human populations. So safe to say, an incredibly important pathway. Yes, it is highly conserved through metazoans because obviously most things need to deal with oxygen on some level. I have to say I'm a big fan of oxygen myself. Um, so yeah, like you say there, it is highly conserved. And you've kind of alluded to this sort of convergence to high altitude tolerance in this pathway. That was really the focus of this paper, this apparent convergence in these three species of duck to hypoxia at high altitude. So maybe you could just tell us exactly what it was that you're hoping to identify in this study. Well, I think plenty of work from Kevin's lab is focused a lot on hemoglobin, which is another factor which is pretty heavily converged upon in terms of a response to oxygen. But there was all this literature coming out fairly recently suggesting how often the HIF pathway was hit on by selection. And so it seemed like it was a pretty good target for us to try and see whether or not we found any suggestion that there was selection acting upon this pathway. Um, I tried to come at it from a very, I don't know, pessimistic way that maybe nothing would come out, you know, because it's possible. But that wasn't the case. There was actually some pretty striking evidence that very specific members of the HIF pathway were also involved within these duck species, especially between the two of them. 
So you mentioned the results being really interesting with these sort of different sets of genes. But before we kind of get onto your actual results, I mean, you'd mentioned that these ducks are in South America, and I'm guessing that you went out there and you collected these samples yourself. Um, well, so uh, did you not? Well, <laughs> well, that's kind of funny because Kevin can definitely take the bulk of this statement at least. But I always thought it was a little sad because people would hear about my project and they would ask me, they'd be so excited, like, oh my gosh, the field, it must be great and amazing. And I was like, I'm sure it was, but I just went into the freezer and then worked on my computer the whole time. So it's kind of a bummer to let people down. Like I just was like, Yeah, I was the one who got the, the high altitude sickness and the Soroche uh, collecting the samples. The, the field work is a lot of fun. They tend to be in pristine habitats that might look like a treeless desert to a lot of people. But if you're interested in wide open spaces and, and birds like ducks, it's been great. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading your paper, the sites sounded fantastic. So I guess, Ali, you didn't get to go out and collect these samples, but you did get to do a lot of the sequencing work, a lot of the computational work, and you did find the really interesting results that are presented in this paper. So maybe you could explain exactly what it was you were finding and if you were finding convergence between these three species. Um, Yeah, so I was in charge of basically all the downstream effort <laughs> after the collection. So I definitely trolled through the literature trying to pick the most likely candidates. So I picked 26 different genes up and down the pathway, but we also then compared them to a bunch of other uh, nuclear data from the rest of the genome. And so what ended up coming out of that, because um, we looked at the speckled teal, the yellow-billed pintail, and the cinnamon teal, was that especially in the yellow-billed pintail and the speckled teal, but also to a degree in the cinnamon teal, was evidence of convergence on the pathway altogether, but definitely more specifically, high levels of convergence for selection or variance between the yellow-billed pintail and speckled tail on EGLN, which is part of the repression machinery, as well as EPAS-1 or HIF-2-alpha, sometimes as it's called. Not only that, but both of those two species had variants that fell within exon 12. And then those variants were also non-synonymous mutations, so they changed the amino acid, and they fell within a specific domain within that protein um, that's responsible for protein-protein interactions which is kind of a, an interesting location for that to happen. And one in which exon 12 specifically in EPAS1 was, as far as what we know from other organisms, affecting some sort of functional change in red blood cell production. So even though we couldn't do a lot of functional work, you know, we couldn't CRISPR the ducks, <laughs> um, <laughs> but all, there was a whole a host of literature that we were able to draw from to show that this had high potential to be affecting a major change within the organism rather than just being, you know, random variation that we found only generally associated. And it was definitely a big surprise. Not only to find that those genes specifically, which are major, major players, like the upfront transcription factors in the repression machineries, but that it actually had funneled all the way down to very similar, like to the exon variation, not exactly the same amino acid, but very close. So you have essentially selection on the pathway in all three species, and then between two of them, uh, well, yeah. you're getting convergence in these two genes, although it's not quite the same mutations, but it's having the same general effect on the protein that these genes are expressing. Yeah, that was our argument. And now in the future, theoretically, it would be to assay whether or not what we hypothesized about its function from what we know about other organisms, whether or not that's truly affecting the kind of change that we think in terms of red blood cell production. And Yeah. 
No, it's pretty stark if the one of the figures where you have all of the genes lined up and you looking for the outliers, there's no contest between those two genes. You know, they're yeah, pretty, definitely. People yeah. will have to go and read your paper to see that yeah, for themselves. Definitely. <laughs> but yeah. um one of the things that's really interesting is you are talking about comparing this to other systems, other organisms. And obviously, like you mentioned previously, that, that these ducks aren't the only organisms that we know of to have adapted to high altitude. So how do your results compare to similar ones conducted in other species? And what do you think your studies contributing to our overall understanding of animal adaptation to high altitudes? There's been a number of studies in various human populations, but some of the genes that pop out the most often across Andean and Tibetan and Ethiopian high-altitude populations are EGLN and EPAS for the most part. So seeing that same kind of parallel there was pretty striking. Although it does kind of half end because in our case, there was exonic variation within EPAS, so ones that could be affecting a functional change. And then there was kind of like some exonic variation, but mostly intronic for EGLN. But for humans, it's kind of the other way around, um, where there's actually intronic variation in EPAS, and there's exonic variation in EGLN. So there's multiple ways in which downstream changes are affected by these things. I think more than anything is that the more about how this kind of stuff keeps coming up is just how predictable evolution can be. I don't know. I still find that pretty amazing that these continue to be hotspots for natural selection to occur on across a whole bunch of differently related organisms. Uh, So anyway, that's my thoughts on it. I don't know if, Kevin, you had other takeaways too that the audience. Yeah, I think Ali raises an interesting um, theme. You know, if you look at hemoglobin, for example, and and you look at birds, most high altitude birds, if if not all, find themselves with a high affinity hemoglobin. So evolution is very predictable. The outcome is predictable. But exactly how the different species get there uh, can be a little bit more idiosyncratic. And and Ali's work's a good example because she's finding, albeit the mutations may be in the same general region of the gene, the mutations themselves are different. And we've seen that again in in hemoglobin as well. So uh, evolution really is predictable, but yet there's there's different ways to skin a cat, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) That was Dr. Ali Graham from Oregon State University and Dr. Kevin McCracken from the University of Miami. Two of the authors in the recent heredity paper, Convergent Evolution on the Hypoxia-Inducible Factor Pathway Genes, EGLN1 and EPAS1, in high-altitude ducks. This is a really great paper, and I highly recommend that you go read it. And if you want to find out more about the field of parallel evolution in general, the recent book by renowned evolutionary biologist Professor Jonathan Losis, titled Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution, is probably the best popular science book I've ever read. In fact, it may be one of the best books I've ever read, period. But that's all for today's episode. As always, you can find the paper featured on the Heredity website. That's www.nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also discover more about the journal and how you can get your research published in it. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow Heredity on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. And if you want to get in touch, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 